focus this morning will be on Hosea 9, verses 10 through 17. I'm going to read that section, then I've asked Tim if he would uh, pray for the ministry of the Word. Hosea 9, verse 10. I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your forefathers as the earliest fruit on the fig tree in its first season. But they came to Baal Peor and devoted themselves to shame, and they became as detestable as that which they loved. As for Ephraim, their glory will fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, and no conception. Though they bring up their children, yet I will bereave them until not a man is left. Yes, woe to them indeed when I depart from them. Ephraim, as I have seen, is planted in a pleasant meadow like Tyre. But Ephraim will bring out his children for slaughter. Give them, O Lord. What will thou give them? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. All their evil is at Gilgal. Indeed, I came to hate them there because of the wickedness of their deeds. I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They will bear no more fruit. Even though they bear children, I will slay the precious ones of their womb. My God will cast them away because they have not listened to him, and they will be wanderers among the nations. Let us pray. It is said that one of the differences between men and women is that men tie knots and women weave webs. When they speak, men think linearly, generally. They have a point, they tie it off, and they do another point, and they speak in terms of tying knots and linear, linear thinking. Women weave webs. They talk around the subject, and there are sometimes as men, we go, okay, I've been around this before. And they weave the interwebs and an interwebs, and then they began to tie those together so that they have a complete picture of what they want to communicate. And it's been said that the Middle Eastern languages, Hebrew, and that culture is like women. They speak in terms of web, weaving and going back over parts of the story and then connecting those things together. And I say that to say this, is that we, we had a reading from Jeremiah 7 this morning, which fits right in because Jeremiah was a contemporary with Hosea. 
And, but we sang a hymn about our transgressions and our sin. And you may be thinking, I've had it with Hosea, because here we go again. I mean, this passage is particularly gruesome, is it not? Just, I mean, there is those who say, you know, God is a bloodthirsty God if he would do this to his people. But Hosea knows what he's about. He's weaving that web. Yes, he's still speaking of these people and still giving us a picture of who they were and, and their sin and how much God hates that sin. But he's bringing up in this section from chapter 9, verse 10, through chapter 11, verse 11, it is a section which gives us a different perspective. He's taking that diadem, that, that picture of who God is, and he's spinning it a little bit so that the light hits it a little bit differently. And, and, and maybe this is why in the middle of his book, Hosea has told us, in that prayer that he seems to pray in chapter 6. So let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. Maybe he knew we would get weary at this point. Maybe he knew that we would get tired of hearing these things, but that we needed to see this new perspective. Let us press on to know the Lord. Because here in this section, he's, he's got four images that he's going to paint for us about his people and the love and, and just the, the, the delight that he has in his people. Here in, in verse 9, or verse 10 of chapter 9, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. And then when we get into chapter 10, he looks at Israel as the luxuriant vine. And then further in chapter 10, verse 11, Ephraim is a trained heifer that loves to thresh. And there's, there's a, a picture there of, of that fruitfulness and of that, uh, the, the work that his people would do. And in chapter 11, verse 1, perhaps the most poignant of these four images where God says of his people, Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. We see God as a loving father. He, he, he describes himself as teaching them to walk. And, and some of you fathers are doing that with your children, holding their hands. He says, yeah, and there comes a point when I held them in my arms. And where that little child... Right? When, when they're learning to walk, they, they toddle and, and they're reaching out to hold your hands and they leap into your chest and you grab them because of the joy that they have in learning to walk with their father. And he ends this section in chapter 11 where he says, and again, the, the poignancy, the, just the, the emotion of it in 11.8, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? See, there, there are things that we need to know about God. And, and yes, there are people in our world today who say we don't need the Old Testament anymore. That God was a God of wrath. But if, if, when we read Hosea, we see some more of God's heart for his people. And we see it right here, beginning in verse 10 of chapter 9. 
There, there's the tone of reflection. There, there's a tone of, of uh, nostalgia, if you will, if you can think of God. Nostalgic for his people. There's emotion here. There's passion here. And, and what we see is his love for his people, but we also see his great hatred for sin. Because, see, he does. And we say it as a cliche. You know, love the sinner, hate the sin. But God loves his people and he will, go, he will go to the absolute limit to show us what sin is and how much he hates it and how he will purge it from our lives. And so we see here as he opens this section in verse 10, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your forefathers as the earliest fruit on the fig tree in its first season. God is, is delighting. He, he's surprised at first. He, the picture is that traveler. He's in the wilderness, and he's weary, and he needs refreshment. And what does he find? Behold, grapes, grapes ready to be eaten. And, and it's a great thing for the Israel. Grapes re represent refreshment. They, they represent the fruit of the vine. And, and not just refreshment for the day, not just today, but now I'm going on traveling, but grapes that make things that continue on, do they not? The wine and raisins. And they're, it's something that, that keeps on even out of its season. And, and he's that excited traveler. I, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness, a great delight in them. I, oh, what a surprise. What a refreshment to find here. And then he says, I saw your forefathers as the earliest fig fruit on the, on the fig tree. Again, the, the grapes and the figs, representing the fruit, right? Representing things that, that, that give us an idea of fruitfulness in the land. And he says, the earliest fruit on the fig tree in its first season. Some of you have planted fruit trees. I have tried to grow blueberry bushes. And we get a handful of blueberries every year. The birds get the rest, <laughs> okay? But it took three or four years to get that first crop. There are some trees, fig trees, I'm told five or six years before that first fruit actually comes. And, and God is saying, I was anticipating. I, there was this, I'm, I'm waiting. And, and we think of first fruits. But, but God thinks even before that, notice what it says, the earliest fruit. I don't want the first fruits, I want the first of the first fruits. That's the anticipation that he has in his people. That fig, we have a neighbor who, when they moved out, they left their fig tree and we, we get to, you know, they gave us permission to pick those figs. And they're sweet and they're delicious. And again, they're a lasting fruit because you can preserve them and you can dry them and you can have those things. And, and God looks at his people like this. He, he, he's pointing to this idea of their fruitfulness, the, the, the things that they will produce and the things that he will see in them. And some of you may have been wondering this, you know, my news and notes, and when I type it out, I, I gave a title to Hosea, you know, Fidelity and Fruitfulness. And we've been talking a lot about their infidelity. And, and Hosea has been addressing that. And now in the book, he's talking about their 
unfruitfulness, and yet the anticipation and the desire and the delight of God and his people is they would be producing fruit. They, they would be pleasing to him. And that's how he saw his people. That's how he saw them as he brought them out of Egypt. The, the idea of the wilderness, that, that God brings them to himself. The, God, the idea, and we've already seen it in this book, kind of in the prologue of Hosea, as he describes what he will do with Gomer. I, into the wilderness I will allure her. And I will draw her to myself and speak tenderly to her. Here in the wilderness is where God dresses his people, where, where God separates his people out to himself, and he delights in them as he teaches them, as he, he cultivates them, as he sees them growing up. But unfortunately, very quickly in this verse, we see that his... Surprise and delight has turned to shock and dismay. But they came to Baal Peor and devoted themselves to shame. We see early on in their exile, our, our exodus from Egypt, Numbers 25 is where they're camped in the area of, I think it's Kittim, and, and the Moabites are in the land. And as they're camped there, their, their eye wanders not only to the gods that they have set up, the Baal, which was at Peor, but to the Moabite women who were the cult prostitutes. And there we see in, in that, the writings of, of Moses, they're wandering. They're going on to worship idols. to give themselves to that which is literally no God. And there's those who say that the reason that Hosea uses the word shame at the end of that verse is because they were told by God that the name of Baal must never be mentioned again. And so he mentions the place and the activity we know there, but the shame to which they devoted themselves is what is in view. And it literally is devoted. In Numbers it says, gave themselves to. They pledged, they vowed themselves to these things. And so we hear Jehovah speak of his people in this shock, in this grief. And we hear Hosea speak twice in this passage. And I don't know how God communicated to Hosea. I don't know how he communicated to the prophets and to, to Paul how, through the Holy Spirit. Yes, I know. But it's almost as if Hosea is, is hearing God cry. He, hearing God speak or think out loud. And he tries to respond, and I've never really understood, except that it seems to me that Hosea stutters in his prayer in this section. Trying to enter in and know God's heart and mind here. Trying to come to grips with it. And it is, yes, it is not pleasant. But God's delight 
in his people is also governed by his hatred for their sin. And we can see the depth of that in the end of verse 10, and they became as detestable as that which they loved. There are those who say that the Hebrew word for love is always active, it is never passive. And it written in English, it is passive, that which they loved. And they say that it could be written this way, that their sin and they themselves have become as detestable as that which was loving them. In other words, the imposter, the Baal, the, the idols that they worshipped purported to love them. And they gave themselves over to that which they thought would satisfy them, would, would fill their inner longings. And what does God say about them? They became as detestable as that. They became as detestable as the thing they worshipped was detestable to God. And literally, that's what it means. If the sin is detestable to God, then this one who is doing the sinning is deemed by God as being detestable. If what you are doing is called shame to God, then you are shame to him. And so they devoted themselves to these things that caused them to be shame to God. What it says to us is that whatever you give yourself to, that is what you will resemble. It is true. It, the very character of the one to whom you draw close rubs off on you. It, it, he's already told us that, the, that you reap what you sow. And in fact, Hosea, we know, goes on. You, you, reap, you sow the wind, but you reap the whirlwind. When you sow to the flesh, you reap to the flesh. And you reap the whirlwind to the flesh. And so this degradation and this depravity, we read about you know, in Jeremiah that was read. And it's in Jeremiah, there's in, in chapter 12 of Jeremiah, he talks about his people. He uses words like this, beloved of my soul. And later on in chapter 12, my pleasant field. But then one chapter over in chapter 13, he describes my pleasant field, the beloved of my soul, is now caught in adulteries and lewdness and prostitution and abominations. And what came to my mind this week was the echoing of David's sermon last Sunday night. He started looking, we look at Jesus and Jesus' fear of God. Jesus walking in the fear of the Lord. And he said, it's, it's, it's not the old insidious, what would Jesus do when it says follow in his steps? It's imitating Jesus. It's being like him in his attitudes, in his heart, in his humility, and his fear of God. And this is just the opposite of that. We become like the one who is loving us, but we give ourselves to things of this world and things of the earth and things of giving into our lust. We will become like that and we will become detestable. 
But the opposite of that, that which he was calling us to, that which he was stirring us to, was that we should be perfect in holiness in the fear of God as Christ was. That we should be growing in his image, like him. He is the one who truly is loving us. And we will become like him, for we shall see him one day as he is. But these people were giving themselves to things that they thought loved them, the thing they thought would fill their souls. And God says of them, they became detestable, as detestable as that which they loved. And what is the result? Verse 11, as for Ephraim, their glory will fly away like a bird. Now remember what Ephraim represents here in Hosea. Ephraim is a part of the ten northern tribes of Israel. And in Hosea it has come to represent that place which is kind of the head or the communication center, if you will, of the northern tribes. Ephraim was a, a son of Joseph, was he not? Ephraim and Manasseh. And Joseph says, I give him the name Ephraim because it means fruitful. Because it's a reminder to me when I look at Ephraim that God has been fruitful to me, Joseph says, in the land where I have been exiled in Egypt. And so the name Ephraim has, has come to represent that, that kind of the headquarters of the, the leading tribe of the, of the northern tribes of, of Israel. And he says of them, their glory will fly away like a bird. Now there are those commentators who say well, their self-respect or, or, or their, their reputation or, or even their worship of God. But look at the context. Look at the next phrase. No birth, no conception, or pregnancy and no conception. I, I believe that their glory, as spoken of by Hosea here, is their progeny, their children, and the generations of children that would come after them. Why? Because in this context, it represents fruit, the fruit of the womb, the, the, the continuation of the nation, that which they hope in. That which they put their, their, their glory in, that is what they looked at. We are children of Abraham. And he says, their glory will fly away like a bird. There's the idea of a suddenness, of an uncertainty, uh, of, of just a disappearance. And, and perhaps, the, some say, like a bird, is that the bird is the chief enemy, as, as I've already alluded to, uh, of the fruit on the vine, is it not? They come and they peck at it and they destroy it or they carry it away before it can be picked. And here you see the picture. And, and, and notice, I mean, you, you've come to understand a little bit about Hosea, I think, and how he, he has these kind of concatenations of phrases. No birth. Not any pregnancies, and no, not even conception. That's how he pictures what he will do to them. Though they bring up children, even if children were to be born, and they were to start to raise them, I will bereave them until not a man is left. And then he adds this for reinforcement, woe, woe to them indeed when I depart from them. This is serious business. He, he's saying that I will, I will cut off the fruit of your womb. 
I, I, I will cut off your people and I will destroy the generations to come. And there is a natural, you know, response. We can think for their immorality and their lewdness and their prostitution. You can think of, yeah, there will be natural consequences of disease and sterility and in the end, friendlessness because of who they are. But God says, yeah, there will be supernatural results as well because I am withdrawing my love from them and I am withdrawing my presence from them. He says, indeed, when I depart from them. This is a pathetic picture. And he goes on, Ephraim, as I have seen. Again, you can see the heart of God. I've seen Ephraim. I have this beautiful picture of Ephraim. He, he, he's like this, this plain, you know, Tyre was, was by the sea, but it had these beautiful rolling meadows. And he says, I have a picture. Ephraim is like Tyre. It, it, it has the, the, the rolling meadows and it has the fruitful trees and it brings forth this fruit in abundance and, and all good things exist there. I've seen Ephraim like that. But Ephraim will bring out his children for slaughter. The armies of the Assyrians are is approaching. The day will come when their young men, the, the ones that have escaped and, and they're, they're, they're growing up and their parents are proud of them, they're reaching manhood and they're reaching that point where they're ready to send them out and be productive in society and be fruit to them, things that they can enjoy the excellency of their children and they're going to bring them out only to be cut down by the armies. And I don't, again, know quite what to make of Hosea's prayer in verse 14. But it's as if he's listening to this and his heart is breaking and he says, Give them, O Lord. Oh, what will you give them? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. And it says, the question is, is, is he urging God on to greater punishment? I, I, I think not. I think it, it is a heartbroken intercession for them. God, the, the families who've raised their children, particularly the young men, the ones who represent the strength and vigor of their youth, to have them leave home to go out only to be slaughtered. Wouldn't it be better if they had never been born, had never come from the womb, and never had nourishment from their mothers? That is what I can make of this. But it, again, is that if Jose is saying, <laughs> I am seeing more of the depth of your heart in terms of your love and your concern and also the depth and your heart in terms of where and how much you will go to in order to eradicate and purge your people of their sin.
And again, there will be those people who say, you worship a God who's bloodthirsty. He just wants to kill these innocent children and he he wants to to close the wounds and he wants to stop the the nourishing of his own people and their generations and their generations. And he doesn't care about their children. And I know Paul gave this verse to encourage his people in that Who will separate us from the love of God? And it's one of those verses where we usually go to the back end of that verse. Will he not also give us everything with him? But did you stop and look at the first part of that verse? I'm referring to Romans 8, verse 32. Some of you may have it on your refrigerator. But he says in that verse, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Do you not see the depth? And Lloyd-Jones says, there is only one length to which God could have gone to save his people from their sins. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. He's not a bloodthirsty God. He is a God who's jealous for his name and his glory, but also that his people would walk in righteousness. He is the one who gave his only son to be sin for us, that we might be the righteousness of God in him. Now you begin to see something of the depth of God's heart and his hatred for sin. And please hear this as well. And I know it's been a a trying few months to those of us who we've had, you know, in our family at least, a a young girl, a young niece of ours died at age 21. Our, Our friends lost their son at the age of 20. And not all loss of, of, of life, not all loss of, of children in the, in, in the vigor of their youth and coming to adulthood is punishment for sin. Please don't hear me say that. But Hosea's prayer is that God would spare some the, the agony and, and that depth, but they, they, would know, they would know God's heart in taking that in which they gloried in to help them see his heart and mind in sin. What is the outcome of all this for Israel? Well, we could go on in verse 15 and we could talk about these things. Their evil is at Gilgal indeed. I came to hate them there because of the wickedness of their deeds. I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. There, there is this reversal of fortune here. And Gilgal is a place, a special place in the history of Israel. It was the place where Joshua first entered Canaan. It is the place where they, they came to land when they crossed over the, the, the dry river of Jordan, and they marched across. It was the place where Israel inaugurated, Samuel inaugurated Saul to be their king. So it has that history in the history books. 
But unfortunately, when we see it in the prophetic books, it always points to its evil. It always thinks of Gilgal as that place. And, and one of the writers, and I wish I could write like this, calls it the geography of shame. There are places in the history of Israel where you hear the name and all you think of is their shame. We have a few in our country, Columbine, Colorado, or, or Jefferson, Missouri. Those are geography of shame in our country. But here, Gilgal was that. It was in Gilgal where they set up a calf shrine to worship idols for false worship, worship that did not honor God. And it was also the place where that same king that Saul inaugurated years before came to meet his end in terms of his kingship. And we read in the scriptures in 1 Samuel 15, Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. He says, there I came to hate them. Not the beginning of his hatred, as some of your versions say, I began to hate them. No, it's actually the climax. It's actually the, the culmination or the, the, the end of his hatred. I, I came to hate them there because this was the end of that people. And this was the beginning of my estrangement. Because the hatred that he has here, do not think of animosity like we might think of hatred. And do not think of rage, but think of this. This is where God declared to them, I am suspending the marriage. It's over. As the husband would tell a wandering wife, an adulterous wife, get out. You can no longer live here. You can no longer, and he uses this word, I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. I will not give them the good things that I was going to give them anymore. I will not bring those blessings upon them as I would have anymore. Because of their wickedness, their idolatry, their immorality, their hypocrisy, and their heresy. And you can see the downward spiral there. The, the idolatry leading to the immorality, the immorality leading to hypocrisy, the hypocrisy leading to heresy. And it's summed up here in this verse 17. Because they have not listened to him. Because, Hosea says, they have not listened to him. God will cast them out. They have rejected him as Saul rejected him. What was Saul's undoing? Again, from 1 Samuel, he says, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, because you have rejected hearing him, because you have not listened to his voice. And so we see all of these things that God wanted to give them and did give them being reversed, going in the other direction. The exodus and the conquest of the land is now being reversed because he's expelling them and sending them back into exile. And the meaning of Ephraim, fruitful from Genesis 41. And now what will they have? Nothing but barrenness. Nothing but, he, he says here in verse 16, their root is dried up. The, the, the vision is, the, the axe has been laid to the root, and it's been cut off. The, the branches have been cut off, and they're no longer connected to the vine. 
And so there's this barrenness that comes with this casting away. And there's no possibility of fruit when the branch is cut off, is there? And what was read in our hearing this morning, you shall be my people and I will be your God, (laughs) that has been reversed. There's an estrangement here. There's a divorce here that that God has said, I will cast you out. And and they're primed for for being slaughtered. They're they're out of the protection of, of God. They're out of his hand and he's given them over. And Hosea sums it up by saying, and they will be wanderers among the nations. We've already seen Israel wandering around like the wild donkey, right? The one that nobody likes, the one that nobody wants to bring in. And they've wandered among the nations. He says they're among the nations as a cake not turned. They, they just, they're just kind of ooey-gooey on one side and baked on the other side, and they don't seem to care or notice And now what we see here is the worst wandering of all. From Jehovah they have fled. Now that he has rejected them, and we know from history that the northern tribes never returned. They went to exile thinking, you know, we have our individual tribes and we have our reputation and we have who we are as a people And they never came back that way. They never were to return as a nation, as the northern tribe. And sadly, there are those who have made themselves wanderers from God as well. Who have wandered away from his word wandered away from listening to his voice. Some Christians that I have known, they are wanderers. They're nomads. They never settle down. We talked about some in Sunday school, the idea of being in a body of believers, connected with the saints, and how that helps us in the hearing and obeying of the word because of the encouragement, of, uh, uh, because of the spurring on of one another. And yet some Christians want to be wanderers. They want to, and in Greenville, you can wander, you can go to a different church probably every month and not hit them all. And that's not what God said. That's not what God meant. You know, yes, there are Christians all over the world, but you weren't supposed to meet them all. But what strikes me the most here is they have not listened to him. And I don't know about women and your sin, because I've never been a woman, right? But I do know something about men and their sin. And when they are caught up in a sin, particularly addictions, whether it be drunkenness or whether it be drug addiction, or whether it be pornography, or whether it be gambling. Those are the big four that I could think of. But there can be pride, and there can be uh, all kinds of sins, of course. 
But when men are caught up in that, they're not listening to anything, much less the voice of reason, much less the voice of God. It's as if it has captured them, all their imaginations and, and, and what Hosea has already said about them, they have become as detestable as that which purported to love them. And I think this idea of Hosea speaking to that which was the glory of Ephraim, their progeny, their fruitfulness, if you will, brings us back and ties us back in to how the first, our first parents, Adam and Eve, saw themselves after their sin, covering their nakedness. Perhaps, as H.C. Leopold says of that event, the good Lord, with definite purpose, lets this effect be felt first in order that the baseness and utter worthlessness of all sin's achievements may be made apparent that man instinctively feels that the very fountain and source of human life is contaminated by sin. The very source of his fruitfulness, the very source of keeping his name on, moving on, the source of enjoying the generations after him to come is contaminated and made worthless by sin. How awful it must have been for Hosea to sit by and hear God say, I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. I am departing from them. Do you see the depth that God will go to help us understand how much he hates sin, but loves us and sees what we can become, what he has made us and formed us to be. The verses that come to my mind that I guess help me kind of sum this up and the repentance that is needed from my own heart is the words of David, that great psalmist of Israel and great sinner before God. In Psalm 51, when he repents of his sin, he cries out, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And listen, listen to the depth of his cry. Do not cast me away from thy presence or take the Holy Spirit from me. Let that be our prayer of repentance and faith and desire that we would walk with him, that he would not leave us, he would not forsake us to our sin, but call us again to himself to be surprised and delighted in each one of us. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, these are, these are hard words to read. They're things we, we don't want our minds to have to think about, and yet Hosea calls us to them that we would be as, as awed and brought, perhaps trembling and stuttering to our knees as well. That let you say what you need to say to us that we might get the message. And so we ask, Father, that we would repent, that we would turn again, that we would cast ourselves upon you. And God, that you would lift us up and restore us 
that you would once again restore that which you would have for us, that relationship, that covenant bond, and that we would walk before you in joy and bring delight to you. We ask that you would do this. We ask, Father, that you would do this. In Christ's name, amen. Would you please rise for the benediction from Hebrews chapter 13. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever.